Maybe you've noticed that in our study of the book of Acts that we have stumbled upon really a study of some of the giant tenets of the Christian faith. Maybe you've noticed that as we've been moving through, and I don't know that I I planned it that way, but as we've been moving through, we keep coming across these huge foundational truths that are essential to our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, let me go ahead and say this this morning, and you can be very sure of this. The truth of Jesus Christ is not for weak-kneed people. The truth of Jesus Christ is not for wimpy people. It is not. That is is a fact. Uh, Do you know that the the folks that we're reading about would be persecuted and would be killed for the truth that we're reading? In fact, the guy that's preaching today in our verses is crucified for this truth. The truth of Jesus Christ is not for weak-kneed people. Now, I think it's a funny thing today We take it and we make wall plaques out of it and hang it in our bathrooms. Listen, the truth of Jesus Christ is not a a thing for weak-kneed people. Well, today we're going to come again to another big, essential, foundational truth that we hold to as followers of Jesus Christ. And I want you to hear this. That is this. There is only one way to be saved, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Only one way exists to have peace with God. There is only one way to be saved, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Do you believe that? Are you sure of that? When I was in seminary, it's been a few years back, I was in my second semester. There was a professor there, and he had gone to seminary. He had a PhD. He had been a pastor several times. He'd been a missionary in the foreign mission field for the Southern Baptist Convention for 15 or so years. And he was now teaching at this seminary. Uh, He actually held the chair of missions the mission department of this seminary. And this is what he taught. He taught, he actually published a paper, but this is what he taught. He said, if you were in a cave and it was cold in the cave and it was dark in the cave and you were hungry there in the cave and you were stuck in this cave and you needed out, you naturally, you wanted out and you were there in the darkness in this cave. And he said, one day, if if you saw a light up above and you started moving toward that light and as you moved the light, the light got bigger and the light got sure and the light got bigger and you kept on going to the light and as you got closer to the light, you could see that it was actually the way out of the cave and you sped up your pace and and you go to the light and you find your way out of the cave. Once outside, once safe outside, free outside, He asked the question, do you care what the light was called? Do you care what the light was named that you followed to get out? And he said this, who cares if it was called Jesus? Who cares if it was called Muhammad? Who even cares if it doesn't have a name as long as you followed the light and got out of the cave? Now, His idea was that God can do whatever God wants to do 
and that God is light and God can reveal himself any way that he chooses to. And as long as you got out of the cave, as long as I got out of the cave, who cares what the name of the light was? You just went to whatever light that you saw. Now what he was teaching is called universalism. What he's teaching is actually growing in Christendom today. It's actually being absorbed into churches today. What he, what he was teaching is that there are actually many ways to be saved. And he was teaching that salvation is not specific, is not exclusive to Jesus Christ. And let me tell you this, friends. What he was teaching was a lie. There is only one way to be saved, and that is by faith in the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And friends, here's what I want to tell you today, and it does matter. It matters. There's only one way to be saved, and it's by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, today's question that we're going to look at as we move through our study of Acts is, is there more than one way to be saved? Now, here's the question. Are we really crazy enough to say that? What about your Hindu friends? What about your Muslim friends? What about your friends on your block that do good deeds and good works and, and really don't have a bad record attached to them? Are you really gonna be intolerant enough to say there's only one way to be saved and that's by faith in Jesus Christ? The message today is entitled, No Other Name. We're in Acts chapter four today, verses one through 12. No other name. I'm going to ask if you would, if you'd stand with me in the honor and the reverence of the reading of God's word. Acts chapter four, the first 12 verses, God's word says this. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come. Lord, I'm so thankful for a Savior. I'm so thankful for a way. I'm so thankful for, for peace with the holy God through Jesus. Not of any work that I did, not of any work that someone else did, but through Jesus. And so we come, and as your people, 
We cling to the name of Jesus. We exalt, we lift up the name of Jesus. We praise the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray for some in this room as we hear this truth that maybe we're becoming more and more grounded in this truth, that we're seeing why it's essential that we believe this truth, but I, I pray for some that do not know Jesus. I pray as they're here and they're, they're looking for, for hope somewhere, they're looking for peace in some way, they're looking for contentment, but Lord, they can't find it outside of Christ. Lord, I pray that today in the remedy for their sins, they would turn to my Savior, to our hope, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would work in this hour. I pray that we'd be equipped in this hour. I pray we'd be instructed in this hour. And I pray that all of it, not just on this day, but in many days pressing ahead, that the name of Jesus will be exalted. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I worry about our kids. I worry about our kids. Our kids are living in a world like we did not. And I say that, and I, I don't want to be flipping in that. Our, our kids, my kids, are living in a world that we did not. Our kids are living in a world totally opposed to the truth of Jesus Christ. And now some of us say, well, I don't think it's that bad. Listen, our, our kids are growing up in a world unashamedly opposed to the truth of Jesus Christ. And I'll just tell you more than that, our kids are growing up in a world proudly opposed to the truth of Jesus Christ. It's a popular thing to downgrade Christ. It's a popular thing to say, you know what, I don't follow that superstition. Our kids today are growing up in a world absolutely opposed to the biblical truth of Jesus Christ. I saw a Facebook post just two days ago. There was a lady, and she says on her Facebook post that she is raising her kids outside of any dogma or any doctrine or any religion. And that was her, that was her brag there on, on Facebook. She's raising her kids outside of any, any religion, and she's going to let them figure it out. And I, I watched as those comments started popping up and on and on and on. Good job. So smart. So wise. Good job. That's what I'm doing as well. As I read that, let me tell you something. I hurt for those kids. Our kids are growing up in a world that says the truth is not true. And here's the crazy thing. Our kids are growing up in a world that when you say that the truth is true, it's counted as hatred. It's counted as prejudiced. If you say the truth is true and this is the truth, they say, you know what, that, that, is, that is wrong to declare. And so our kids today, and, and you watch it, they're, they're growing up and they're backed into a corner, especially in this one area. I want you to be very sure today to say that there is salvation alone in Jesus Christ is politically incorrect. And we've got politicians and they want to beat around the bush and they want to act like they say one thing. I want to tell you something. To declare there is salvation alone in Jesus Christ and all other ways are of Satan and all other ways will end in the depths of hell is politically incorrect. To say there's only one way to be saved today is considered intolerant. 
It's intolerant of what they believe. It's intolerant of how they came up and it's considered intolerant. It is considered hateful to say there is salvation alone in Jesus Christ. And let me just tell you, our churches sadly have become cowards in this area. And so our kids are confused. Your kids will leave your home. Some of them will go to the workforce. Some of them will go maybe to the military. Some of them will go to the university. And they're, they're going to be inundated with this thought that it's not kind to say somebody else is lost. It's not loving to say somebody else is lost. It's not, it's not the kind of thing. That's not our God. And they're going to they're gonna hear in the churches, you know what? God is gracious. He is loving. He wouldn't send anybody to hell. And they're going to be caught in this corner. They're going to be confused. Kids, youth, parents, church, hear me today. Listen to me very carefully. And let me just tell you, you can take this to the bank. You hear me. The most kind, the most gracious the most loving thing that you could ever, ever do is to tell a lost and dying world the truth that there is salvation alone in Jesus Christ and I don't care, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. To let somebody go down a path that's gonna lead them to destruction, that's not loving. Well, it's not popular, but you know what? It's not loving to let them go down a path that's gonna lead with them consumed in their guilt and their sin and, and, and opposed to God for all eternity, that is not kind. The most gracious, listen to me, young people, the most gracious thing that you could ever do is to point to our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's salvation in him alone. Let's go to our verses today and let's see how it unfolds here in the book of Acts. Remember the context here. Peter and John have healed a guy that was lame since birth, crippled since birth. He is outside of the temple. It's at the three o'clock in the evening uh, time of gathering for prayer, the most busy time there at the temple. And they healed this guy. Well, a crowd has drawn and Peter is found preaching his second sermon now here at the temple. And that's what we've passed through the last couple of weeks the guy has been healed, a crowd is drawn, and he is preaching the truth of Jesus Christ. Well, today as we go to the fourth chapter, we're gonna see the response of the Jewish leaders. And that's where we're at today, starting here in chapter four, verse one. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. Now, the word, for, the, the word in the original language for came up to them uh, is a little bit more aggressive than we translate it. It actually means burst upon them. And so they, they, they came quickly upon them. They, they burst upon them. It says the priest. Now, these were the regular priests that were there for the evening sacrifice. It says the captain of the temple guard. This is the head of really the temple police, those that, that kept order and structure there to the temple. Uh, it, it tells us where you can find that this guy was, was next to the high priest in authority there in Jerusalem. So the high priest is the, is the main guy, but under him in authority is the captain of the temple God. And then it says the Sadducees. 
Understand, the Sadducees were the dominant religious leaders of the day, but more than that, they were the dominant political leaders of the day there in Israel. Now, they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in eternal reward or eternal punishment because it couldn't happen apart from resurrection. Politically, this group of, of, of people had made an arrangement with Rome to be in power and, and to grow in power and to prosper as long as the Jewish people stayed in line. And so really, they had made these deals with Rome. We'll oversee these people. We'll oversee this area. We'll make sure the, the taxes keep coming in. And in turn, you will prosper us. You will take care of us. And so they are profiting from their positions. Now, when I, I read that, I think about our politicians today. These folks are profiting for their positions. Well, the verse says, as they were preaching, as they were speaking, as they are in the middle of the sermon, they burst in. Now, I want you to see the picture as it develops. We're going to see it as we move through the verses. But they, they hear the, the commotion. They see the crowd. They see what is going on. And, and as they listen, these leaders, they, they burst in. They spring upon them. Verse 2 being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were, they were greatly disturbed. They were worked up. They were indignant because these men, and they're going to say it later as we move through our verses later, they weren't teachers. Well, what do you mean you're, you're teaching? You're not a rabbi. You're not a, you're not a teacher here at the temple. And here they are, it says they are teaching the people. You, you're not given any authority by us. You haven't been approved by us. You're not a teacher, a rabbi, and yet they were teaching the people. And it says, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now I want you to see this. Kind of interesting here. The issue really wasn't in Jesus. The issue was really in the resurrection from the dead. And if you read the language of the verse, you'll see that. Really, their issue wasn't so much with Jesus. Their issue was the resurrection from the dead. They're teaching, notice, in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. Now, why is that a big deal? Understand, the resurrection from the dead, for most of the Jews, for many of the Jewish people, pointed to the Messiah. The way they were raised, the way they were instructed, they understood when they heard about the resurrection from the dead that it had messianic themes to it, that it was pointing to the Messiah sent from God, Israel's promised hope. Well, these leaders, all they needed was for the people to give their allegiance to a Messiah, to a king, and not to Rome, and their, their situation falls apart. That, that's the last thing they needed. All they needed was for the people to say, what, we've got a king and we've got a leader and they think it's gonna be political. And so all they need to mess up their deal is for these people to start a commotion and turn to this new Messiah. Be very sure this was more political than it was religious. In fact, if you think about it, Jesus' death for these folks was more political than religious. You know what? They're going to mess up. He's going to mess up our deal with Rome, and we're going to lose our position. We're going to lose our stature. And so, so they're upset, and they rush upon these two guys preaching. Verse 3. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, 
for it was already evening. Now remember the account, Peter and John came at three o'clock in the afternoon for the, for the evening prayer time. And now they've met the guy, they've talked to the guy, the guy has been healed, they've gone further into the temple courtyard, the crowd is gathered, the, the word is out, and they've preached there. And so now in the passing of time, in the, in the passing of these events, it is now late in the evening. And so verse three says, they grabbed them up and put them in jail until the next day. I, I thought this was interesting because they had a law that you couldn't have a trial at night. They didn't worry about that law when they had Jesus, did they? But with these guys, you know what they're worried about this law? We can't do anything tonight, and so we'll put them in jail. We'll get them out in the morning. Verse four. But many of those who had heard the message believed. Luke writes this in. It's very important. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Okay, we see what's happening here, but in the midst of that, God wants us to know, but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Luke records that many of those who heard believed. They believed the gospel. They believed the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Now, it's interesting here, not all of them, and you think, well, this guy got healed. They've been preaching the truth, not, but not all of them, probably, honestly, not even most of them. But many who heard believed. It says the number of men who believed in Jerusalem grew to about 5,000. Now, I want you to see this, and sometimes I like to just think about what this looks like. See this, people are realizing the truth about Jesus. Can you imagine how awesome it was to know somebody that saw the resurrected Christ, to maybe know somebody that was healed by Christ, to be there and to firsthand know all the stories about Christ, and as the lights start to come on and they are realizing the truth about Jesus. Do you know how exciting that must have been? Here are these people who for thousands of years have looked to a Messiah, have looked for the hope of Israel, and the light comes on. He is it. Jesus is the Messiah. And and the truth starts to, to come to life. How exciting that must have been. Hearing the gospel, 5,000 people are saved. That's what that means. 5,000 people, at least, that's just the number of the men, have been added to the church, and God is moving, and, and there's a movement that's sweeping through Jerusalem, and eternities are changing. Can you imagine how exciting that was? He is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Our King has come. I don't know how the Lamb's book of life is ordered, whether it's chronological or maybe it's alphabetical, I don't know. But somewhere in that book, there's the names of these first 5,000. Can you imagine that? 294, 366. Somewhere in that book are the names of these first 5,000. And you know, sometime... We, we, we might stand in eternity and we might stand next to this guy and he might say, you know what, I, I was at the temple that day. Craziest thing that happened. There was a guy that was walking and leaping and praising the Lord. In fact, he's about two blocks over this way. He's still doing it. He never has calmed down. And you know what, on that day, there was these guys that showed up and all, all the guys that killed Christ, they were there. But you know what? They told me the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And on that day, I was saved. 
Can you imagine that? What, what an exciting time. Thousands of people are coming to the realization of the truth of Jesus Christ. Woo, how awesome that must have been. Verses five and six. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, verse six, and Annas the high priest was there and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. The rulers, these would have been the chief priests, there would have been 24 of them. The elders, these were the heads of the tribes. These were the the family heads of the tribes. The scribes, these were the experts in the law. These were the the Pharisees, those that were experts in the law. Annas was the former high priest. Now, he's not the high priest now. He's the former high priest. And most likely, he is the most powerful man in all of Israel. Caiaphas is his son-in-law. He is the current high priest. It says two guys John and Alexander, we're not sure who they are. They're elite and they're powerful and they're somehow tied to the priesthood. Really, the Sanhedrin, the ruling court, all of the leaders of Israel, they're all there. Understand, these are all of the guys. If you ever wanted to see all of the guys, all of the guys, all of the leaders are there. Verse seven. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire. By what power or in what name have you done this? Tradition says that the the courtroom they would have been in would have been a semicircle. And so all of these esteemed leaders are seated there in their places of honor around the semicircle. And they're fresh out of jail. They bring in Peter and John and they put them there in the center of 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 the circle. And they ask them, by what power... Or in what name have you done this? Now, really, they're asking, in whose authority did you do this? That's the question. In whose authority did you do this? Now, I want you to notice something here. Notice they're not denying the miracle. And I think that's kind of funny. They're not not denying the miracle. You know why? It's because somewhere outside, there's a guy walking and leaping and praising the Lord that couldn't walk not that long ago. Really, the issue is what do we do moving forward? They couldn't deny the miracle. Really, the issue is by whose authority did you do this? Now, I'm sure those guys are saying, I wish that guy would quit out there. He sure stirred up a lot of trouble, but they can't deny the miracle. They can't gloss over the miracle. And so they say, well, you then, whose authority did you do it in? Verse eight. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. Now, I love this in verse eight. I love this. Peter stands there and God works through Peter. Now, the verse says he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to see what that means is he stands up, he walks into this semicircle and he is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. But I want you to also see why that happens is because he is submitted to the Holy Spirit of God. I want you to understand he had a choice. 
He could submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit of God or he could quench the Holy Spirit of God. But because he is submitted and walking in and listening to the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God empowers him. Rulers and elders of the people. Sometimes I, th- I see things crazy, crazily, and so bear with me on this. Right here, Peter has a choice. And here, I, I just picture what's happening here, and maybe I see it in, in a crazy perspective, but right here, he, he has a choice. He can see this as he is getting ready to preach to the people who killed Jesus. That's how he can see this, and he wouldn't be wrong. That's how he can address this. Notice the names Annas. Remember that name? Caiaphas, the rulers and the elders. Notice those are the people that killed Jesus. Do you understand that? Annas, Caiaphas, the rulers, the elders, the leaders. These are the people that killed Jesus, and they actually did it. They killed him, and be very sure they can kill him too. And so either he can see this as, I'm getting ready to preach to the very people that killed Jesus, or he can see it as, I'm getting ready to preach to the big dogs of Israel. I'm getting ready to preach to the leaders of the leaders of the leaders. I'm getting ready to preach the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ to the movers and to the shakers of Israel and glory to God. If you're gonna preach to somebody, then you might as well preach to the top. Ooh, what an audience he had. Now, it doesn't say it. This is my paraphrase. (laughs) But in my mind, Peter looks around this semicircle. Caiaphas, Annas, the leaders that killed Jesus. He looks around all the power in the room. He looks down at all the sets of eyes. And here's what I picture. I picture he looks over at John and he says, hold my cloak. Here he that's what I picture. Here he goes. Verse 9. Whew, what an opportunity. Verse 9. If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well. Now, listen to his confidence built in him from the Holy Spirit of God. If that's what we're on trial for, for a man that was sick, if you want to know how he was made well, Now, understand this. From the Old Testament in Leviticus, if a person did a miracle, the leaders were to discern if it was of God or if it was of something else. And if it wasn't of God, they were to stone them. And so if they couldn't say, no, this is of God, if they couldn't prove that, if it was some kind of evil thing or if it was a a falsehood, they would be stoned. And so that's what's happening here. Whose authority is this? And, and Peter walks up and says, if you're wondering how the guy is healed, let me tell you. If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, listen to this, that by the name 
of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Whoo, don't miss this. I want you to see what he just did. Peter just preached the one true gospel. Now, I want you to notice these words. You be very sure he is exactly deliberate in each word that he uses. He says, Jesus, the man, the, the, the flesh and blood man, Jesus Christ, the office, the Messiah, the, the promised hope of God, the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Now, this is a specific man. This is one that's from the city of David. This is one from the, from the house of Jesse. This is one from the, the tribe of Judah. This is one that came up as a shoot, but you did not esteem him. This is Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. And he goes on. Whom you crucified, the one you nailed to the cross, the one that died shedding his very own blood, the lamb who was slain. Then he goes on whom God raised from the dead. See this, he is now the risen lamb. He is the risen Messiah. He is the risen hope. He is the risen savior. He says, you wanna know whose name? You wanna know by what authority? It is Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, but yet who lives again. It is in that name he preaches the gospel to him. Whoo, good job, Peter. That old... Scumbag Annas up there, what does he do? The one you crucified but lives again, Caiaphas. Oh yeah, Jesus. You wanna know which name? Let me tell you, my Savior, Jesus. Who Peter's bold, he tells him the name. Verse 11. He is the stone which was rejected by you Listen up, Pharisees, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Now, verse 11 is interesting. Sometimes we think <laughs> this was a new thing. The old system didn't work, and so God had to do a new thing. They, they messed up that deal, so he has to do a new thing. I'm sure these leaders think this is a new thing, some new threat against us, some new person claiming to be the Messiah. And so they're thinking this is a new thing. Well, Peter goes back to the Old Testament Psalms. Pharisees would have recognized that, the scribes. He goes back to the Old Testament Psalms and he quotes Psalm 118. The stone that the builders reject becomes the chief cornerstone. And he shows them from the Old Testament this is not a new thing, but rather it was always the thing. And, and Peter here in this, one, in this one verse, verse 11, makes this very deep. He, he really shows all of the irony that is going on here in the gospel as it unfolds. He, he says here in this verse, that cross that you thought was defeat, it was really the victory. That grave that you thought would be the end, it was really the beginning. That man that you killed, remember him, Jesus, the Nazarene, the man that you killed? He's the author of life. The stone that you rejected is the foundational stone. 
where there was one man and a few followers and you thought you ended this, there are now 12 men and there are now thousands of followers where you thought the movement had died and it was gone. The movement is alive and it is flourishing and that stone that you rejected, that stone that you cast away, it is now the chief cornerstone. And I want to tell you, every eye is on Peter. The stone you rejected is the cornerstone. Every ear is listening. All the tension is on Peter. They're they're listening to Peter. And right here, you know what he says? He says the most hated thing he could say. He says the most politically incorrect thing. He says the most politically inconvenient thing. He says the most intolerant thing he could ever say. This is what he says, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there, you want to know who his, what his name was? For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Every eye, every ear is listening. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Oh, dear friend, hear me today. Listen to me today. There are not many ways to be saved. Listen, hear me today. There are not several ways to be saved. And I want to tell you, as intolerant as it is, as exclusive as it is, as politically incorrect as it is, as hated as it may be, There is not even another way to be saved. Oh, but you listen to me. If you are a sinner lost in your sin, if you're a sinner buried in your guilt, if you're a sinner judged and condemned already, if you're a sinner separated from a holy God, if you are a lost sinner and you look to Jesus in the grace of a loving God, in the power of a risen Savior and of no work of your own, if you look to Jesus, you are saved. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. I left that seminary. I didn't want their name on my paper. But let me tell you what that old smart professor was missing. Here's what he was missing. You see, if you're in the cave and you're stuck in that cave and you've tried and you've looked and you've worn your knees and your ankles and your your hands bloody trying to find a way out, what he was missing is if there's going to be a light, the only light would be Jesus. And my friends, Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior says this, I am the light. Let me tell you, the most gracious, loving, kind thing you could do is to tell people in any belief set, people in any condition, there is a Savior, there is a hope in Jesus Christ. He is the light. Let's pray. During Father, we come. And I, I rejoice, Lord, I rejoice in the light. Lord, I come, I, I tell you, I'm sorry.
for people that would come and try to diminish the light, would try to hide the light, would try to say other things could be the light. Lord, nobody else went to the cross perfect. Nobody else went to the cross and died my death. Nobody else came out of that, that, that grave alive. Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I come and I praise you, my hope, my Savior, my King, the light. And I'm thankful that in the grace of a loving, powerful God, there is hope in Jesus. Lord, I, I pray we wouldn't shrink back from that message. Lord, I pray for our, for our friends, our Muslims, our friends, our Hindu friends, our, our atheistic friends, that we would care enough to stand in the midst of those that would throw a rock at us and tell them there's hope in Jesus. Lord, help that to be the message of our church. But Lord, more than anything, I praise you, the light, my hope, my Savior. Lord, I pray that in this service that you've, you've spoken, I believe you have, I pray that you continue to move. I pray now in this time of invitation that there's one here that doesn't know you, that today in their sins that they would cry out to you and they would turn to you for, for their salvation. By faith, you'll save them. You say you will. Lord, I pray for us as a church. Pray for our kids, our young people that will go and have to stand, us as we stand as well, that we would wave high the banner. There is salvation in no other name given among men by which we must be saved than Jesus. Move in our midst, Lord. We praise you. We thank you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.